Welcome to The Modern White Man, the podcast where myself, Ken Lawrence, and me, Paul Johnson, discuss how to be a modern white man who is anti-racist, anti-sexist, and understands his role in creating an equitable society. We unpack our identity as white men by having honest, open, and sometimes difficult and uncomfortable conversations about being a white man, where we come from, our place in today's society, and roles to play moving forward as allies, leaders, and individuals who care about creating an equitable society for all. All right, Paul, here we are in our fourth installment of working through our racial identity process. This is the last episode of the history part of our process where we explore all that led to our current racial ecosystem in the United States. So I'm anxious because we'll finally link it to this moment. Last episode, we discussed the reconstruction period after the Civil War, which was a abject failure. Yes. As we talked about, and the eventual abandonment of Reconstruction and abandoning the integration of freed blacks into society as citizens. So that that really leads into my biggest takeaway from last week, abandonment, mm-hmm. right? Just complete abandonment of trying to reconstruct after slavery, of any efforts at all to help black folks integrate back into society any abandonment of helping them economically, education, all that. It was just sort of throw up your hands and be like, this is too hard, so good luck, Um, which was clearly not what was told to them originally, right? They were told they're going to get land, they're going to get economic opportunities, and so it was a real whiplash. And, you know, we talked about it last week, that it was just one of the biggest forms of white fragility in the history of our nation. Yeah, right. right? Because it's just, this is too hard. And also, it's not really in our self-interest as white people to continue to help black people, right? Because th- and maybe that's what some folks are picking up, right? Mm-hmm. Like the more we help them, the more we we lose out, right, on the advantages that we have, privilege that we have, on the the power that we have. And so maybe it was this unconscious voice saying, like, the more you help them, the more you don't help yourself. But clearly, in the long run, is about. People couldn't figure it out. They couldn't agree. So it was just sort of a throw your hands up in the air and and let's just forget about the whole thing. You know, there was a Supreme Court justice at the time who I think it was 10 years after the end of the Civil War, 10 to 15 years, something like that, who said it's time that we stop giving privileges to black people. Like now we're, we're making it uneven and giving black people an upper hand And that's just not fair. If we want equality, then it has to be equal across the board. This was a Supreme Court justice. There are a few Supreme Court decisions that led to the ability for states to have segregation be legal, that led states to not provide equal protection under the law or equal punishment for perpetrators. I mean, this is the Supreme Court. And so a Supreme Court justice saying, yeah, it's time. It's been 10 years, <laughs> not since, you know, slavery since 1619, mm-hmm. that you think it would take a little bit longer, but people are just like, oh, it's, it's starting to become a little bit uneven. Like, black people are now starting to have the upper hand, which is, it's shocking in general, but a Supreme Court justice just goes to show how institutional it was. Yeah, it, it makes me think of that quote that 
when you're accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression. Yes. This is exactly what that totally. Supreme Court justice was feeling. Yeah, like, exactly. Clearly, objectively, things were very, even, well, still very uneven, actually, to the advantages of white people. But he felt, because he was used to privilege, used to power, used to dominance, that it was becoming uneven on his side. And so it's that, that bias that you have when you're used to dominance. I won't get into this because it would jump way too far ahead, but I do on this podcast when we're more in the unpacking episodes and you know what it means for our identity. But I want to talk eventually about affirmative action. Mm-hmm. And it's the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. Is affirmative action was put in place just to create systems to be more equal. Mm-hmm. And the moment it came out, white people are like, this is bull crap it's taking jobs away from me and ed- my education spots away from me and it's just mm-hmm. like yeah it just felt like oppression when you're used to privilege mm-hmm. yeah it's wild mm-hmm. so we'll talk more about that in the Looking future forward to it yeah so my biggest takeaway from last episode was around the idea of the white savior and having the balance currently for us as avoiding the idea of white people being white saviors being supportive and giving a voice to others but using your own voice you know that's a difficult balance today and back then i mean it was all about the whole society was based on white savior i mean black people wanted to have these individual rights take care of themselves individually but this whole white savior mentality and and white savior institution, it was this the white people who would either allow that or block that. And it's a dangerous thing that continues today. And I think it's something I will continue to think a lot about in that balance that exists. All right. So we left off last episode at the transition to the Jim Crow South. So you probably can think of what the Jim Crow South looks like. You see like segregated signs like whites only and coloreds only and that kind of thing. These laws lasted from 1880, so when we abandoned Reconstruction, to 1968. That's 88 years. Okay, And again, the purpose of these laws was to maintain white supremacy, and they completely segregated whites from blacks. So they had separate schools, hospitals, public transportation, restaurants, parks, theaters, bathrooms, water fountains, jobs, neighborhoods, building entrances, cemeteries. I mean, they segregated every aspect of life. And these laws thrived in this world of extreme violence. So before we go on, this is my major history naivete showing up. Because as you know, my, my knowledge of history is limited to the whitewashed history books from high school yes. and middle school and also and Hamilton, the musical. Right. Oh, um, I just so, watched that for the first time, Paul. And? Amazing. Isn't it the best thing ever? I wanted to get tickets and go live. It just never yeah. happened. And then it came out and I'm like, I just have to do it. You need to see it live. It was unbelievable. It's so good. I've been listening to the soundtrack. Yeah. It, it's unbelievable. But clearly that's just a, a small slice of history. So who is Jim Crow? Like, <laughs> What is Jim Crow? What is it, is it? Where does that name come from? Good question. So Jim Crow, the name Jim Crow, was a popular minstrel figure. Minstrel shows, which we will talk about in this episode, are white performers playing black people in blackface. Mm. So that's a minstrel show. And they perpetuate every stereotype of a black person as bumbling, as stupid, as, mm-hmm. as a not citizen, sloppy, 
dangerous. And Jim Crow was a very popular minstrel figure at this time. So they named these laws after a super racist, stereotyped minstrel figure. Fitting, of course. Yes, of course. It couldn't just be any kind of name. It had to be, the name itself had to be insulting. Of course. Yeah. The name just sounded so, it sounded so innocent. (laughs) But clearly it's not. I'm like, Jim, I mean, whoever he was. Yes. White was, supremacists get you again, Paul. Right, yeah, God, they're <laughs> sneaky. <laughs> Nothing is innocent. <laughs> oh, so let's finish out this process and look at a few consequential policies and tactics in the Jim Crow era. So once Reconstruction ends and the South isn't being supervised by the federal government, One of the biggest policies put in place is sharecropping. So in sharecropping, blacks were given access to plots of land, which they control and work, but don't own. It was owned by a white landowner. So in return for working the land, they would give a portion of their crop to the landowner at the end of the year. And in most cases, they were coerced into signing unfair yearly labor contracts, many of which made it impossible to repay for things such as tools or seeds, and it created this cycle of debt that they couldn't escape. And if they refused to sign these contracts, they'd be arrested and jailed for vagrancy. If they tried to get out of a bad contract, they would also be arrested and jailed. So they were forced into these subservient positions where they're back to working fields for free, many of whom were working the same fields they worked when they were slaves. So with all of these arrests, there was also a huge system called convict leasing. This is where whites would arrest blacks on a minor or just completely trumped up charge. These quote unquote convicts would then be loaned out to a planter or a corporation to work for free. There would even be bidding wars over convicts. So white people were the judge, jury, and executioner in the whole justice system. This was straight prison to profit pipeline. Both sharecropping and convict leasing were a way to keep the power and continue to get free labor on plantations from blacks. Another way to maintain power was to prevent as many blacks from voting as possible. Throughout the South, there were many voter suppression tactics. So here are a few examples. One was literacy tests. So a black person would come to a polling place, white people would be running it, and they'd make them read something. If there was one word they didn't know or didn't pronounce correctly, they wouldn't be allowed to vote. There were good citizen tests. So they would make voters demonstrate they understood the Constitution. An example would be something like a black person would come to a poll, a white person would say, hey, Tell me the 12 state Supreme Court justices, first and last name. Nobody knows that. And if they happen to know that, they'd say, yep, you're right. And now what are their middle names? (laughs) They wouldn't know. Couldn't vote. You're not a good citizen. They had poll taxes. was essentially a voting fee that no one could afford if you were black or poor whites, actually. You know, we talked in the very first episode, I think, about the importance of separating blacks from poor whites to not have like a socioeconomic uprising, which would have been very possible. And so that suppressed the poor white vote. They have to show a valid form of identification. Well, black people weren't given valid forms of identification. Ex-felons were not allowed to vote. And we just talked about the convict leasing where they would just arrest anybody for nothing and then they could never vote. So get this stat, Paul. In 1875, 
This was the roller coaster ride of reconstruction and at one of the high points of this roller coaster ride, there were seven black house members and one black United States Senator at the federal level. In 1901, there was one black representative. And then after 1901, there were zero black members of Congress until 1929. So talk about going completely backwards. And don't forget if anyone fought against this or said anything, violence would be the result. As you're talking about those suppression tactics, you know, of course, you know me, I can't help but think about today Mm -hmm. and we see all of it. Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, clearly, even today, ex-felons aren't allowed to vote and, you know, there isn't the convict leasing anymore, but there's things like, you know, even just trace amounts of marijuana or just like little petty things that you get a felony for. School to prison pipeline. Yeah. It's kind of like convict leasing. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And then valid form of id same thing exists and then good citizens test that made me think of like sat act mm-hmm. like because they're written by white people for white people yeah and the questions are from the white voice and the information and the questions themselves are culturally white right so you have a, have a black person who grows up in a black culture they're they're, they're not going to get a lot of that yeah right it's not suppressing them from voting, but it's suppressing them from advancing in an education sense. Yes. Right. Right. The fact that it's 2020 and having voting be available to everyone and removing barriers, and in many cases, barriers that are purposely put in there to suppress people of color and poor people. The fact that that's still happening, isn't that kind of mind boggling? And not only that, but all right, you and I are trying not to get political with this podcast, <laughs> but- People in high office in this day and age are openly advocating for this stuff. If we can learn anything about the power of the vote, look at the Reconstruction era and what black people went through and risked just to have that right because they didn't have it forever and they could see what it meant to not have it. People take advantage of it and people need to vote. The fact I think about Andrew Johnson, who was impeached, by the way, Paul, that I didn't mention last time. Yeah. He was the first president ever impeached. It's like, man, that's crazy, isn't it? The president of the United States is like doing all this stuff directly. But we have people in high office in 2020 that are openly doing this stuff. And it's just kind of wild. Yeah, it's mind boggling, but also not at all at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> because we've never consciously as a country really just like stopped there's never even been like a formal apology or or a formal like as a nation we need to just like take some time to really look at our history and and learn from it and and look look inward right and do do the anti-racist work so yeah i mean a lot of ways it's not surprising at all because we just keep pushing on and like pretending it never happened right and not not learning from our mistakes or not flipping the script. I mean, that's really what it is. We keep reiterating the same script, which is white supremacy and and racism. And and so it's no surprise that it continues to just, it continues on in different forms. And it's just because we've never collectively as a nation taken the time to flip the script. Right. And now in 2020 still, you have people in high office who are saying that discovering this stuff and talking about white supremacy is anti-American. Mm-hmm. And that goes to your takeaway of white fragility. If it wasn't at its peak during the abandonment of Reconstruction, it's at its peak now. Mm. I just feel like there's so much attention going on and white people are just saying it's anti-American to look at the history of our country. It's pretty mm-hmm. remarkable. Yeah. And I don't know if it's if it, that's built like comes from manifest destiny. And clearly, like we have a lot of pride as a nation and all countries do, right? Like all yeah. countries, of course, think we're the greatest country, but 
for some reason, America just has this bloated pride that we are the best country in the world. And it's sort of protecting that image. Because anytime anyone brings up any statistic or any incident of an ugly history or even currently, like it's quickly swept under the rug because it, it flies in the face of this idea that we are the best country in the world. Right? And, and it's singular. We are the best. And if you say anything right. that's not great, you are unpatriotic. Right. Yeah. So with all of this at the time, propaganda also starts really popping up. And this propaganda is showing whites as superior and blacks as inferior. So there were different types of propaganda. There was scientific racism propaganda that was quite literally fake science showing that blacks were biologically inferior. We talked about this in our very first episode. And this started picking up at the time. And they would have posters that would go across the country showing skull shapes. And, you know, the skull shape of a black person is less advanced as a white person is closer to an ape and that's literally fake science that that was spread that was called scientific racism they used rape scare tactics which was extremely influential showing that black men were a threat to white women and in all forms of media it portrayed blacks as stupid out of control when they were serving as representatives they weren't decent and didn't understand or deserve citizenship And as the 1900s move along, minstrel shows become incredibly popular source of entertainment. So I I told you about that with Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. These minstrel shows are white actors in blackface, and they're portraying all of these racial stereotypes. And it's crazy to look at images of that. And the white-only crowd just laughing and in the theaters. And it's kind of a, a very twisted sight. And it's not just in the South. This is spreading into the North and the West and all over. So also as a part of the propaganda was how the history itself was written. In the South, a hugely popular book after the Civil War was called The Lost Cause, and it portrayed the Confederacy and what they fought for as right and admirable, despite the military defeat. It showed whites as fighting for the principles and way of life of our country. It was a gracious Southern society that defended itself against Northern aggression. So it's the white elites in the South who took control of the narrative and how to teach that period of history. It's how they made the case for Jim Crow laws and segregation. Kids growing up in that era grew up as segregationists and believing in this false narrative that white supremacy was good and just and necessary. There was also an incredibly popular movie called The Birth of a Nation that came out in 1915 that reflected this lost cause propaganda. It even portrayed the KKK as heroic and emphasized all the worst black stereotypes. This was not only popular in the South, but popular in the North as well. And it's so powerful that it revitalizes the KKK. President Woodrow Wilson at the time even holds a screening of it in the White House as he is segregating all government offices. So it's at this time that the Great Migration happens. So I talked about this, Paul, at the beginning of last episode, that up until 1900, 9 out of 10 black Americans lived in the South. From 1916 to 1970, more than 6 million black people moved from the rural South to cities in the North, Midwest, and West. The security, economic opportunity, and overall ability to live a free life was essentially made impossible for blacks in the South. 
So this coincided with America's involvement in World War I. So the North actually needed more industrial workers, and they recruited blacks to the North. Paul, get this hypocrisy. This actually made the Southern whites upset because they still relied on exploiting black people to uphold their wealth and power. This was like hypocrisy from the three-fifths compromise way back in the Constitutional Convention days, right? So the black populations in big cities like New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, Detroit, they all exploded. And they're all going to these big cities because that's where the economic opportunity is. So they're going from rural farms in the south to city centers, urban areas in all of these big cities. And that's like the, the American dream, right? And that's the other like hypocrisy in all this. Like black people are seeking the American dream. Like they're seeking out employment. They're seeking out opportunities to care for their families, raise their families, and build wealth. And, you know, economic opportunity, that is what the American dream is about. Right. And have security. And have security, yeah, and get an education and make it, make it in this country, right? But then you have the South being like, no, 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 you're you're not meant to do those things. You're meant to be exploited by us, right? You're meant to essentially enslaved, right? Like, not in a legal sense, but still enslaved and, and, and kept down. That's another form of that, the hypocrisy of, of people who espouse the American dream as like it's available to everyone. Mm. Everyone deserves it. And, and it's it's just a matter of rugged individualism and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, and get a job and care for your family. Meritocracy. Right, yeah. right. Um, but yet when black folks did that, that was seen as a threat rather than, hey, look at them. Awesome. They're, they're realizing the American dream. That's what America is about. Mm-hmm. Which is to, to say that not everyone deserves that is obviously like anti-American, right? Right. right. But, but those are the folks who are saying like, I'm a patriot. Yeah. And the hypocrisy around this segregation idea too, where whites wanted to live separately from blacks, so they segregated everything. And then the North's like, cool, come on up because we need workers for World War One. And South's like, no, we don't want that. Like there were posters being sent down to come up north. There's working in facilities and cities. And the white southerners were hiding that and trying to get Mm. rid of it. And it's like, it just goes to show they were saying one thing Mm -hmm. around, we want to be separate or segregating. We'd be better off without this. And then the moment blacks started leaving in mass, Mm -hmm. they're like, Oh, no, we can't have you leave because they still rely, just like slavery. They still relied on them. They needed to have that upper hand. They needed to blame anybody for anything. Like, they were, it's just that hypocrisy piece kind of caught me off guard. Even with all the Hmm. hypocrisy that we've had in this country, but it's like, really? Like, you're segregating your society 100%? And then the moment that the blacks are like, okay, we're going to leave, you're like, no, 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 you have to stay. It's like this, we don't want you, but we need you. Yeah, right. Which is exactly like what the narrative is for immigrants today. Yeah. It's like, we don't want you in our country, but we also need you because, you know, you're doing the jobs that I would never do, right? Mm -hmm. And I think like, even in like the workplace is like this tokenism thing. Like, we don't really want you working here but we're gonna hire you because we need you to to make us look good right so we can create this sort of propaganda like look at us how diverse we are because we have these people of color on staff but we're still going to maintain a a white supremacy culture to make it oppressive an oppressive experience for you Mm -hmm. because we we really don't want you right we're showing that by not being inclusive but we need you to make ourselves look good yeah 20 percent of our employees are now people of color but one percent of our leadership is right you know we have one person of color yeah and our turnover rate is like 
and ninety percent. And they're a diversity inclusion officer, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's a, yeah. It's very true. So all of a sudden in the north, you have blacks coming up from the south in mass. And now all of a sudden there's new competition for whites in the north. Aside from competition for employment, there was also competition for living space in increasingly crowded cities. So while segregation was not legalized in the north as it was in the south, racism and prejudice became worse now that there was this new huge wave of competition coming in in the form of migrating black people from the oppressive south. So because of that propaganda, plus the resurgence of the KKK, black and white relations across the country worsened. It was actually the summer of 1919 that was the greatest period of interracial strife in U.S. history at the time. So this included a disturbing wave of race riots. And the most serious race riot, you might think, oh, is it in Atlanta or New Orleans? No, it was in Chicago. The Chicago race riot of 1919. It lasted 13 days, left 38 people dead, 537 injured, and 1,000 black families without homes. And these race riots are essentially white people attacking black people in mobs and trying to get them out of the city. So with these tensions, housing tensions were particularly high. So to deal with this authorities started segregating neighborhoods and instituted a practice known as redlining. So now we are not in the South anymore. This is all over the country. So in defining the fair value of a home and property for risk ratings for mortgages, they settled on the rationale that neighborhoods occupied by the same racial group would be the most stable over time and produce the highest property values for residents. So it was in those quote-unquote stable areas that the government backed loans to make mortgages more affordable and investment was made to increase home value. So Paul, guess which neighborhoods were deemed the most stable? White neighborhoods? You're right. Ah, Yes. They were white neighborhoods. So the Federal Housing Authority took a map of every metropolitan city in the country and literally drew red lines around the black neighborhoods, which was essentially a big alarm screaming, super risky, do not insure any mortgages. It even had codes of ethics warning that realtors should never be instrumental in introducing into a neighborhood any different race or nationality. And then you have these white neighborhoods who themselves would boycott when a black resident tried to move in because it would lower their home value. So black people found themselves at the mercy of realtors who massively overcharged on rent. They were unable to invest in home ownership, which in this country is the number one way to create generational wealth. And they were sequestered to urban areas that became severely overcrowded and deprived. It resulted in further falling value, failing infrastructure, and increased crime. This essentially segregated schools, and these schools in the urban areas become the most underfunded. So to be able to survive and thrive, everything that we've talked about, black people started looking in. Thrival. Remember, you made a word for that. Yes, thrival. Thank you. You Survival and thrival. Thank you. I will. So for survival and thrival... Black people started looking inwards. I mean, they create their own community. White people have made it impossible to integrate. So here, Paul, that was a high-level overview of connecting all the way to where we find ourselves today. I mean, we talked about the creation of race and the racial hierarchy to morally justify slavery. We talked about how slavery and that racial hierarchy played such an integral part in founding this country and constitution. 
talked about how the debate over the expansion of slavery to new territories and maintaining white supremacy as the country grew led to the Civil War. We talked about the Reconstruction period and how we abandoned it and failed at integrating freed black people as citizens in society. And we talked about the violence, policies, propaganda, the segregation that went into upholding the racial hierarchy. And that's, Paul, why things are the way they are today. You, you figured it out. You know? And nobody in America will take the time yeah. to learn this. Well, I, I think it's because there are so many white men in power, white people in power, who never really wanted black people to be free. And to this day, don't want black people to be free. Like, it's clear if you look throughout history, white people would say, yes, we're freeing you, we're giving you rights. But clearly, in action, it did not turn out that way. And then the narrative of white supremacy just just continue to roll along the redlining thing makes me think of you know how the narrative of racial inferiority in that like you know we're seeing today that black folks are disproportionately affected by covid people are saying well that's because black people have these pre-existing conditions they're, they're basically implying that that the black race is inferior and not as healthy and so they have these like conditions that made it the more susceptible and more vulnerable to the virus which is true but the the reason they have those conditions isn't because of their race the reason is because they're redlined and forced into neighborhoods and areas of a city that had more pollution, water pollution, air pollution, higher density. That's why those conditions were, were created. That's why black people have some of these um, health issues, right? And of course, poverty, you go down the line, right? right. But yet there's this, this narrative that continues to, to point and say, see, see, actually black people are, are inferior. Here's another example of that. But it's obvious, like we look at the, the Human Genome Project and you'd think that'd be a definitive, like, no, there, there is no, and there's no such thing as race, right? But still people deny that in order to uphold white supremacy, right? right. Because it's, it's, it's to, to maintain those advantages. And I hear unconsciously, or maybe consciously, supporters of white supremacy who are white men who will say things like, I mean, just look at the crime rates, and they're much higher. I mean, look at the neighborhoods. They're unsafe. For what you and I just went through, yeah, no wonder. I mean, to what you just said, it, it has nothing to do with an inherent biological race issue. It is because we did not set people of color up for success in this country at all. I grew up in the white suburbs in a neighborhood that I, I can't, I can think of one house that was a black family and their dad played for the Vikings. Otherwise, every single house was a white household. You know, growing up in that environment for me, and you think of the inner city, and you think of unsafe, and you think of crime rates, and you see on the news how crime is portrayed. And unless you do the work to understand why that is, like a young Ken might just think like, that's the way it is. It's a inherent racial difference, you know, unconsciously. But you have to understand that these overcrowded, non-infrastructured, not a lot of socioeconomic opportunity areas are because we sequestered people of color into these areas. You look at any race across the entire world. There is not a link to crime with race. There's a link to crime with socioeconomic status. 
So people who don't have a lot of economic opportunity or don't have a lot of money are more likely to commit crime. No wonder crime rates are higher, disproportionately higher for people of color and black people in particular. It's because we've put them in these situations. I feel like it's just, it's, it's frustrating because it's pretty clear how you and I just went through this whole process to see why that is, right? You and I are at the end of this and it's like, yeah, I get it. Unless you do this work, you're just going to come to your own conclusions that aren't mm-hmm. true and you're going to have unconscious biases and you're going to have all these things that are really damaging. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the other thing on top of that, not only, you know, does crime come from poverty and, and high density and, you know, and I remember it, I took a psychology class in college and I did a whole paper on the Abu Ghraib um, prison scandal. I don't know if you no, I'm not familiar. familiar with that. Gosh, I'm really digging into the archives of my brain right now. But essentially, I, essentially, what happened was in this prison, the officers started to treat the prisoners inhumanely. Like, would strip them of clothes, would make them eat their own feces, would just parade them around, like do just unbelievable things. What my paper was about was how there were a lot of elements that led to that, and it was all about lack of control, like lack of control over temperature, lack of control over the smell of the place, lack of control of even being able to leave, come and go as you want, um, lack of control over the noise. So all of this like creates this like almost like this insanity in your mind, right? Mm -hmm. That leads to these like really inhumane behaviors that you would never do if you were like at a at a Hyatt, you know, a hotel, right? With a pool and Mm. air conditioning, all that stuff, right? They interviewed these or did tests on these officers later and found that they're like psychologically fine. Like these were these are quote unquote normal people. I think that's what happens in these like high density city areas is you have you're you're in close quarters with other people. Sometimes people don't have heat. Sometimes people don't have working showers or anything like that. Right. It's it's all of that causes people to just like act unnaturally, if you will. You know, maybe that's the wrong word, but you know what I mean? Like to act out. So anyway, all that to say is, you know, that's clearly an element. And then the other thing, too, is like, where do the police go? Where where do they spend their time? They go to the inner city. Do they ever patrol the suburbs? I mean, you live live suburbs-ish, right? Like, are there police cars coming in and out, right, of your your cul-de-sac? Like, no, of course. They're they're going to the the quote-unquote hotspots. But there's there's statistics and evidence that shows that, that, like, drug use is just as high, if not higher, in suburban areas. Yeah, oh, yeah. Right? But, But police don't go there. And you like marijuana possession mm-hmm. is a really good example of if police found a white kid with marijuana, it was like slap on the wrist. Yep. Come on, buddy, don't do it. You find a black kid with marijuana, mm-hmm. they would arrest the whole car. Yep. And it's that perception. Yep. So I refuse to say I live in the suburbs. <laughs> that's, that's why I said like suburbish. So I right? am. <laughs> <laughs> I, am, I am a mile from the border of Minneapolis, but not only am I a mile from the border of Minneapolis, I'm a mile from the border of North Minneapolis. Mm. So my town is called Robbinsdale. And when I tell people that I live in Robbinsdale, I've gotten reactions of like, ooh, like, mm. is it safe? It's really close to North Minneapolis. Mm. You just have this perception of, ooh, a mile from North Minneapolis? Like, do you hear gunshots at night? I mean, it's, it, and and in, here in Minneapolis, North Minneapolis is one of the redlined areas where they put black people back in this day. And as a side note, in St. Paul, there was a thriving black neighborhood called the Rondo neighborhood 
that when we needed to put in a big interstate, what neighborhood were we going to have to get rid of to put in this interstate? We destroyed the Rondo neighborhood and relocated all these black residents to you know, overpopulated areas. They weren't allowed in other white residencies. So, I mean, the redlining here in our own hometown in Minneapolis has like a very Mm. dark history, like a lot of cities. Yeah, and we know that, and the highway was to serve white people who had moved out to the suburbs. Yeah, I want to go from Minneapolis to St. Paul faster. To Hudson, where I grew up. Yeah, that's right. Right? Yeah, 94 connects right from the cities to to Hudson, Wisconsin, my hometown. Exactly. Which is the last time, last time I heard was like, I think about 90% white. Yeah, right, right. You make an important point about kind of the snowball effect. So you're overcrowded. It's hot. Have you ever read A Case for Reparations? Yes. It's um, uh, it's Ta-Nehisi, by... Yeah, Ta-Nehisi Coates. Ta-Nehisi I'm Coates. I'm his name, sure. Yeah, because but... that's really where redlining was my first like, oh my gosh, this existed. And I also think redlining is something that not a lot of people know happened. Mm-hmm. And a big part of that article was around, and I say article is like a pamphlet. It's this huge, huge piece. And a lot of it was around that snowball effect where these residents are like, hey, you, you can't have any kind of generational wealth buildup. You're put into these unfair contracts. You're working all the time to make ends meet. You're not there for your kids for their education. And then they talked about the kids, like, you're growing up in this area. What are you looking at? You're looking at a system that is continuously making life extraordinarily difficult for your parents and everybody you know. You'd love to move out. You can't. And it has this psychological impact that creates this cycle of poverty that is really impactful and and has a huge impact on our society. This is all news to people because... A lot of this is news to me, too, is we just don't take the time to listen to black people. (laughs) It's so simple. But but I think it's part of that white fragility. It's part of that that avoidance of wanting to to look at this dead on. Right. Mm -hmm. And and again, natural human emotion, like anything that is disturbing, like, of course, we're not going to run towards it. Like, yeah, yeah, tell me everything that's horrible. But it's that white fragility that prevents us from going there. And the defensiveness too, because like yeah. we're we're gonna immediately feel that we're responsible, right? And I mm-hmm. think what's been encouraging that I've seen in, in a lot of narrative lately is that that there's a, a lot of and even from people of color like pushing towards white people, like this is an institution, like you we know you didn't create this, right? This is an institution, and and I know you've said this like. By being able to objectify it as an institution, it's much easier than for us to enter into that. Mm-hmm. But of course, that doesn't make us exempt from any individual responsibility because we right. continue to perpetuate it. But as soon as we can enter into this conversation as like we are talking about an institution that's been created and solidified over hundreds of years, I think it makes it, again, I don't want this to be like, it's, this has got to be easy, but it makes it easier to enter into those conversations mm-hmm. But regardless, we have to set aside our own ego. Yeah, and I was thinking that we could have a whole episode on defining a few things and like defining racism as an institution. Now that we've gone through this process, we can more easily unpack words like white supremacy and these words that people automatically cringe and become very defensive with. Paul, you and I are the first people to say we have a long way to go. We're gonna, we need to learn so much still. But I can say in my years at least of doing this and working through, and we call it, we say do the work for a reason. It's work. Mm-hmm. 
It's not easy. It's not easy to look at aspects of your society that are so unjust. The natural reaction is to become defensive, is to become angry, is to feel guilty. Like there's all these steps. And I want to convey how much better it feels to work through it. Like if you keep on it, like we both have done for years, like we can sit and talk to white people, people of color about institutional racism and like not have this defensiveness and try to continue to work to see where our place is, but recognize that this is a system that eventually we want to make more equitable for everybody. And it's just liberating. It's a liberating feeling to get rid of that individual guilt, that individual defensiveness. And the more and more white people that get to that space Mm -hmm. and get there with humility and get there with an idea that I still have a lot to learn, that that can make a big impact. Yeah, and, and that it, that involves pushing back against the cultural norm of individualism, mm-hmm. right? Because again, like if you and I wanted to, we could just set all this aside and just carve our own path, raise our own families, do our own thing, and that would feel like we're living the good life. But that is within the context of an individualistic society where we where we are able to to separate ourselves from other people. Like it, it's this idea like we are not connected to other people and other people's lives. And, and there's good and bad in that, right? Like, I'm not knocking individualism necessarily. You know, there's, there's, there's pros and cons to everything. But that individual mindset is tempting to be like, people of color, like, their problem, it doesn't, it doesn't affect me, right? It's not connected to me. Um, and their plight is not my plight. And that's such an individualistic thought, right? If we were living in a collective society, it'd be completely different. Yeah. So we have to push against that temptation, especially when we have white privilege, to just do our own thing and kind of like what Reconstruction was about. Like, we wish you all the best. Yeah, right. You know, like we tried and, you know, this sucks for you. I'm sorry, like that that we're leaving you like this. But, you know, just work hard. Yeah, you can get there. You'll be fine, you know. Um, which is so tempting to do right now in, yeah. in today's world. But I think with how much we're able to really witness it, I think is pr- unprecedented with, with social media mm-hmm. that it's it's in your face and we can't ignore it anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's it's so in our face and we can't turn it off even if we wanted to. And I think this shows that individuals can only do so much, maybe unfortunately, that systems are so important and so influential and policies are so influential and when systems are set up in a way that put one group in front of another and that systems are long ingrained and have strong roots it doesn't matter how motivated or strong or what have you an individual is in many cases it's just the system is too powerful you know something i'm personally working through and we'll work through in this podcast is what can we do individually but what do we need to do to create policies that are more just right i think i mentioned this in past episodes but that was one of my biggest takeaways from how to be an anti-racist by abram kendi is it's all about it comes back to power it's all about power it's all about policies it's all about putting anti-racist policies into place for better or for worse that does shape society because that's what shaped what we are in today mm-hmm Right. Yep. So you can use the same approach, laws and policies that created the mess we're in today, laws and policies to, to create a better world moving mm-hmm. forward. Or maybe not at all. I don't know. Maybe maybe this whole approach has been, you know, maybe there's another approach that we're not even aware of. I remember we talked about that, too, is like we're kind of in an exciting phase. We're like, 
we can get maybe creative here. Like yeah. we don't know what this nation looks like when it's anti-racist, mm-hmm. right? right? It's never existed ever. Yeah. And so we can kind of dream and imagine like what that might look like. And we had a huge opportunity to create that and we dropped the ball. Right. Big time. With yeah. Reconstruction? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and clearly, too, the, the efforts, even from, you know, the abolitionists to people who went through Reconstruction, like, it just never took the extra step to be anti-racist. It was really about being, you know, and Ibram Kennedy talks about this, too. There's a big difference between being not racist versus anti-racist, mm. right? A big difference between the two. Can you I, describe that briefly? Oh, I, I mean... Or we can not racist. It, you know. Yeah, I mean, I guess my my off the cuff answer would be to be not racist is sort of this colorblindness. It's sort of to sweep the issues under the rug. I mean, you're not explicitly outwardly racist, but you're also not anti-racist. You're sort of this in between. You're complicit to the system. You're you know nice to people of color. You try to treat everyone the same. You mm. know the golden rule feel good about yourself right yeah Yeah. but anti-racism is literally seeking out policies and laws Mm -hmm. and and existing systems that that are built on white supremacy and a racial hierarchy and doing the work to dismantle it yeah and even just the idea of dismantling or or deconstructing the racial hierarchy that was never done in the history of our nation like we never after we abolished slavery never we never stopped to be like okay we need to get rid of this race concept thing before we move forward as a country because like clearly that's going to be an issue moving forward. So let's let's do the work as a country, a collective conscious to be like we need to dismantle this race thing because it's it's a socially constructed concept. So if we're ever going to create an equal society, we need to at least unpack this race concept. But that was never done. So that's sort of this like being not racist, but the anti-racist approach would have been like we need to like literally like look at this concept and be like we need to unpack it we need to dismantle it and we need to collectively moving forward understand that all races are equal like there is no inferior race Mm -hmm. that's a fallacy so i I think that's where it failed back then that step was never taken and that sort of repeated itself over time and it's failing now right and white people are still unwilling to have those conversations yeah you know, this is good. We have a really good base here. Do you feel the understanding, and I don't know if confidence is the right word. I think it's confidence for me that comes from going through this process as like a base to kind of understand like, all right, here we are. We know how we got here. You know, now next we want to really unpack our identity within this. Mm-hmm. I mean, you and I are white men. So now we need to unpack about what that means. Do you think having this history base makes you feel ready to do that? Yeah, 100%. I think, you know, I think what is important to be said is I think you you and I both, before we did this podcast, went through a lot of process of coming to terms with this. Mm-hmm. I think we jumped into this podcast, like already kind of going through this process of like, we really looked deeply and like, it was painful. Like, oh, yeah. we, you know, it was a painful, uncomfortable, shame-filled process. Yep. So I think, you know, listeners who haven't gone through that, like, if you haven't gone through some sort of process where it hurts, there's still some work to be done. Because mm-hmm. I, I can say with confidence that I wouldn't be in this place of, like, feeling ready to, to take on, like, the, the how this defensiveness is less than, it's, it's still there, I mean, to be clear, but I've broken down that defensiveness and those walls and those barriers because I went through a process of really taking a good hard look at the white supremacy within me, the racism within me, and admit it. And when I finally got to a point where, like, that 
like I came to terms with that, then that's when I'd be like, all right, let's let's get started. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but there was a point in my life for sure where I, you know, I'd get called out and it would be just shame filled. Like oh, yeah. Brene Brown talks about you get this sort of overwhelming full body sense of shame. Right. When you get called out and then you just retreat. It's, it's a completely different experience for me now. Yeah. Like if I get called out, it still sucks. Like, don't get me wrong. But I'm like, almost like, thank you. Yeah, right. Because you you are helping me see white supremacy within me, see racism within me, and helping me dismantle that. So anyway, yeah, I, I think there's so much more that we haven't covered. And maybe, maybe we will in the future, too. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? How do you start that process of yeah. kind of facing that that ugliness within you? And also at the same time, like, it's really important to understand that, like, it's ugliness within you, but it's not you. That's a really important distinction. Because if you think it's you, then you're you're stuck in shame and shame keeps you down. But if you see it as a part of you, something that's been taught, something that you learned over time, but isn't you and your identity, then you're able to really get somewhere. And I think that's part of the racial identity process we're going through with white men, because we do face that. And we're at that point where it's almost like that first phase is over. You know, we're not completely 100% done with the history because we do want to explore the man part of white man a little bit, you know, and more than just gender history, the idea of masculinity. But then, you know, we're entering this phase two of now we have a base. Let's continue building on that with some more individual aspects. So we'll start that next time. Cool forward to it yeah no more andrew johnson talk next yeah time, right don't say that don't say that he'll he up. might come up yeah he'll probably come up <laughs> <laughs> thank you for listening to the modern white man please follow us on twitter at the modern white man for updates on new episodes and please feel free to shoot us a note with questions or thoughts for future episodes as always if you're enjoying this podcast please rate subscribe and share both individually and on social media. That's how we get the most traction. After all, the more white men that have these conversations, the better.